Hello, my name is Ben Oden. I'm an author, capacity building and leadership development trainer. Each week, Mimi, pamoja na viongozi mbalimbali who will be featured on this podcast, will bring you leadership principles, stories and philosophies that if applied will elevate you into a position of more influence among those you lead and those who lead you. Greetings to you. I hope you are doing well and are having a productive day. Welcome to another episode of the Why Lead Others podcast. I am your host, Ben Oden. Now, today we'll be exploring the world of change and innovation. Uh, and I'll kick things off for the question. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you are dissatisfied with how things are and you believe that you have ideas uh, on how to make things better but didn't know how? Or maybe you knew how but you were not successful in your attempt Are you a leader who wants to create a space where the status quo is never permanent but ever changing because your team and organization is creative, innovative and always pushing the envelope? If these questions resonate with you, well this is the right episode for you. We'll be exploring all of that and more. And I am joined by a powerhouse thinker. She is recognized as a national and international expert on intelligence analysis, strategic thinking, diversity of thought, innovation and entrepreneurs in the public sector. She has worked for more than 30 years at CIA most recently as the director for the Center for the Study of Intelligence. But don't let that fool you into thinking she's a bureaucrat, she's an organization organizational heretic and an all-purpose troublemaker. Her story as a heretic and change agent at CIA is featured in in Adam Grant's uh, number one New York Times best-selling book Originals: How Nonconformists Move the World. Um her areas of expertise include developing rigor in analytics, uh, navigating the emergence of new global norms, developing the transparent and collaborative future culture of work and supporting diversity. She is the co-author of the book Rebels at Work, a handbook for leading change from within. Ladies and gentlemen, Carmen Medina. Carmen, welcome. Thank you, Ben. I bet you have an impressive resume. <laughs> Thank you. Um how would you define an organizational heretic? And maybe you can tell us a story of how you realized that you are one and, you know, what inspired you to set out to essentially to uh speak into the lives and uh, careers of other heretics. Yeah, good question. I I get asked that a lot and often people will ask me, "Well, I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm a rebel at work or an organizational heretic." And I tell them, you know, when you come up this is how you know when you come up with an idea that you think is valuable and could make the organization better mm. and you present it and other people in fact around you agree with you your some of your colleagues think it's a good idea too and you present it and the management team frowns or looks askance or makes it clear that they would rather not have this conversation or perhaps even tell you outright just go away we're not interested when that happens and then you decide i'm going to keep trying that's when you know you're an organizational heretic or rebel at work so it's a lot of people confuse it with just being critical of management mm. well we're all critical of management and a lot of people say well you know i always have 
good ideas in meetings. That's not it either. A, a heretic is someone who realizes that they believe and have ideas that are contrary to what the organization thinks, but decides my ideas are too important. The improvement my ideas could produce are too worthwhile. I'm going to keep trying. It's that moment when you keep trying that you become, I think, an organizational heretic. Mm, I think this is where you make the distinction in the book of uh, a good rebel at work and a bad rebel mm -hmm. at work, right? right? Yes. Uh, and when did you realize that you are one? I mean, I know you've shared this story before uh, where, you know, a woman essentially after a meeting, I think in the 90s, uh, came up to you and, you know, she essentially called you, you know, like you're a heretic. You're a and, heretic, uh, right. And I, I did not, had never thought of using that word. I mean, I, like a lot of people, I think, starting off career, at this point, maybe I was in my late 30s, let's say, mm. and you've you're doing well, you're successful, and people applaud your good ideas, well, you sort of think, hey, I can keep sharing my good ideas. As long as it's my idea and it's a good one, it's going to mm. help my career. And it was in the 90s that I realized, oh, no, uh, people don't seem to be responding very well to these ideas. And uh, just at that moment that I was having that experience, this woman came up to me and said, you know, you're an organizational heretic, or you're a heretic, and this is going to be a very hard road for you to follow. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I mean, obviously it made a great impact on me because our memory is such that we remember everything in our life that made a real difference to us, right? The mm -hmm. things that yeah. you forget are probably the things that just weren't that important. Mm. And I've always remembered that. And I, you know, I think back during the 90s where I, I really sabotaged my career and in serious ways by advocating for my ideas. And, you know, it became kind of a, a snowball effect where mm. I, I would advocate for my ideas. I wouldn't get a job that I was competing for. That made me matter. I'd keep advocating for my ideas, but now I'm also mad because I'm being passed over for a promotion. So both things kept happening. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, it never really entered my mind to just shut up. I just felt the ideas were important. And I guess in a sense, in, in the act of not shutting up, according to your definition, you are, you know, uh, proving to yourself, uh, I guess, in the world that you are a true heretic because... You couldn't give in. You couldn't uh, essentially yeah, keep yeah, quiet. Right. You believe it passionately and you're really uh, persuaded that this will make a difference. And, you know, a lot of people talk about how the world only moves forward because of people who believe strongly in an important new idea. Now, the problem with that is you can have a good idea or you can have a bad idea, right? Mm. Uh, you can be a good rebel or you can be... Uh, a wise rebel, or you can be a uh, troubled rebel, and mm. that you know that's just that's just life. That's that's human nature. So there are ways to think about your idea and and ways to lobby for it that help you figure out whether or not it's worth fighting for. Right? 
Yeah. And and a big mistake I think that rebels and organizational heretics make is that they uh, confuse their ego with the value of the idea. And I think that's really difficult to avoid because we're all humans. Mm. But you get into this situation where you get personally upset because your idea is rejected. And that's that's always a bad place to be. And I think, how, how, how can you tell the difference? Because I, I like what you just said um, between, because yeah, you know, a good rebel can have a bad idea, right? Right. Um, so when there's pushback, how do you know that the pushback is really because your idea is not good uh, versus the pushback is really because the leadership is not ready for change? How, how can you tell the difference between the two? Right. Well, it's hard and it's there's no 100% accurate way to do that. But I think... In an organization, if you're the only one who is willing to lobby for your idea, if your idea is so unusual that you're, you can't get others to support it, mm. it may not be a bad idea, but I'll tell you for sure it's an idea whose time has not yet come. Mm. And there are uh, many good ideas that have to mature for a long time before they're accepted. So there's nothing so weak as, as an idea whose time has not yet come. Uh, so first, you need to uh, talk to others, to your colleagues about your idea. You also, I think, need to be well-read about what's going on in whatever business world that you're thinking about or uh, what that's an uh, analog to where you work. And... Uh, you know, you can usually find other people writing or discussing similar concepts. If you're the only one with this concept, you're either like a genius or <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're kind of yeah. wrongheaded, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you have to think about your idea in terms of, you know, can it, you know, there's other ways that you can think about it. You know, is it theological in nature? Is it so against the orthodoxy of an organization that they can't imagine themselves going in that direction? That's that's one issue. Uh, another, uh, just practical things. Is it an idea that would be very expensive to implement? Mm. Is it an idea that in principle makes sense, but no one really understands how to get there? Right, so mm. that's like where we are with quantum computing right now, or uh, human-like artificial intelligence. Everybody thinks that's a, a great goal, but none of us really understand yet how to get there. At least I don't think we do. And mm. so, putting your whole organization's resources behind a risky idea is, you know, probably never a particularly wise business move. Yeah, and something that you just mentioned now, right? Theological uh, change. I mean, change generally is very hard, and people, you know, like the first reaction is always to push back on change. Right. But when we get to, you know, theological change, trying to change the core of anything, right. um, I'm certainly convinced that it's going to be hard. Right. And so, and you've used your time at CIA uh, to illustrate, you know, the reality right. and the truth behind mm -hmm. this uh, idea that theological change is. Hard. So my question is, what makes it hard? And um, how can we attempt to initiate such change when we believe that it's necessary? Right. Well, organizations have uh, 
like a value proposition that they're built around, you know, some some good that they believe they can uh, provide at scale and make a profit on. That's what organizations do. If your idea for change is going to somehow materially affect that core value proposition, mm. then uh, you are proposing something theological in nature. So in my case, how I got into trouble it, is that it was the mid-1990s. The internet was beginning to emerge. Mm. And I thought, this is going to change everything. This is going to change how knowledge organizations work. In 25 plus years, I'll be in a uh, video conference with a young man in Tanzania discussing mm. leadership. That's how different the world is going to be. Mm. And, I, and I said, and all knowledge organizations are going to have to adjust to it. The core value of the CIA is secret information provided discreetly to just a few people. That's the core value of the CIA. And the internet was, is not and never would be about that. And what made me stupid at the time was that it, I didn't realize that. I, I didn't actually think, what, it, what is it about the internet that people are objecting to? And if I had just spent, I think, less time being angry and more time diagnosing the situation, I would have realized that I was advocating something that would cause the CIA eventually to have to reconsider a lot of its values. And, and nobody really wants to do that, right? Mm. And so how you, you know, how you can, well, first, it's really hard, okay, to advance theological change. It's a lot easier if you're a position of power. If you're Elon Musk, right, mm. you, you can do it. Uh, but if you have an idea and you're just a worker bee, what you need to do is figure out, is there any way that I can position my idea so that it is more consistent with something that the organization already values? Mm. And that's eventually what I did. So, you know, it'll be different in in different situations. But the bottom line is think hard about what the organization values and see if there's any overlap between what your idea does and what the organization wants to do. And if there is some, that's where you begin your, your work. Mm. So I guess what you've just spoken about there is uh, the idea that you've also addressed is uh, approaching through adjacencies, right? That's yes, what you've just spoken about. approaching through an adjacency. That's right. Yeah, yeah, which is essentially about connecting the change to something that they already care about. That they already care about, yes. And so what if um, you believe that the change that needs to happen uh, should happen immediately uh, and playing the long game essentially is not the best way forward? What if that's the case? What are your wow. options there? So... I don't know. I don't think you have too many good options there, in my opinion, unless, except for become the leader, right? Somehow you, you become a leader, you leave, you start your own company. Because one of the things that I think is, is problematic for rebels at work, for organizational heretics, is that meaningful change takes time. Mm. And it is 
and attempting to do it very quickly without regard to all the human emotions involved and just the practical necessities of it mm. is bound to, to lead, I think, to a catastrophe. I mean, one of the truths I've discovered is when you're an organization and you're a heretic, you spend a lot of time talking about your vision and your end goal. And oftentimes everyone agrees with your vision. Yeah, it would be a better world if X, you know, could happen. But what they are opposed to is all of the disruption that will occur to get us to X. And so rebels and heretics spend way more time about their vision and goals and not enough time about the practicality of making that change. And organizations, in fact, we all value smoothness. We want things to go smoothly. We want things to go consistently. So you, as a rebel at work, as a heretic, need to think about what's the least disruptive way I can implement this idea. And the least disruptive way almost always is start small. Mm. You know, find the kind of a pivotal place where I can do one small thing that if it works will kind of inevitably lead to other uh, dominoes falling and other changes being made. Okay, yeah, interesting. Uh, and I think um, something that maybe you didn't explicitly say there, but uh, you sort of like pointed to is the idea of getting others involved, right? This idea right. of alliance. Right. Um, and I think the words that you've consistently used is, you know, making your ideas other people's ideas. Right. And... I've heard this, you know, of course, in different forms uh, from different uh, thought leaders uh, in the area of leadership and management. And I think it's an idea that is, seems to be very prevalent, especially in politics and government, right? It's thinking mm, politically mm -hmm. and building alliances and everything else. And so my question is, do you think alliance, because alliance has to be based on like mutual, right. uh, something that both of us are interested right. or we, right. have, we invested in, or, you know, there's a stake that we both share. So do you think this is the, best way to bring people together, you know, is alliance. Um, because I think, and I could be wrong here, um, sometimes, you know, where alliances go wrong, right? Where right. one group uh, has growing demands and needs, and then another one, you know, you need their, them to support you, you need them to be with you. And so you're put in this spot where you have to uh, service their needs and their growing demands, and you maybe sometimes have to compromise to make sure that they don't leave you. Uh, we see more of that in politics, uh, but even organizational politics. So how 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 can we constructively build alliances that don't go rogue, essentially? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, and when we started talking and used the phrase "rebel alliance," we were. Uh, yeah, I think influenced by the whole Star Wars mythology and the phrase yeah. Rebel Alliance was, you know, in the culture, right? So we used it. But I think you make really good points about how an alliance is actually often built around short-term benefits that you can gain by working with each other and may not have the foundational uh qualities that will allow it to endure through hardship and success because success can be difficult as difficult for alliances as as hardship and and the word that that strikes me that is a better word 
is community, right? So mm. you want to build a rebel community. And the uh, the community kind of implies more permanence, right? That's not, you're not together just to do this one thing. You're yeah. together for any number of reasons. Uh, and um, another way I like to phrase how I talk about uh gaining supporters is that you need to make your idea community property. Mm. And I, I hear a lot from people when I talk to groups about being, uh, who, uh, to people who are frustrated because someone else is getting credit for their ideas. And I try to gently suggest to them, that's not a bad thing. You know, if you can, if the idea is moving forward and you may not have gotten all the credit, I, I think the universe kind of works out and I'm perhaps being naive here, but you're going to have more ideas eventually. And people will actually remember that this thing that we do now, it actually began with such and such a person's idea. I find that I have that experience when I go to the uh, agency because I still teach twice a year to um, the mid-level managers at CIA. And in, you know, and it's now been 10 years. So quite removed from my time there, but they, they, they all kind of remember, oh, you know, we have this because you, you fought for it. Right. Mm. And I may not have gotten, you know, at the time credit for the idea. So I think that you have to, uh, think of it. I think if we could think of it more as a community, I think if we could think of organizations, more as communities, I think it, it would be, you know, a more, a better world. It's probably mm. a little too idealistic to think of it that way. You know, I've always, I was a leader, I used, you know, I was a manager for a lot, many, many years in my decades in my career. And I was always uncomfortable with the idea of, of management as, you know, telling others what to do. I, I found that very unsatisfying and i always thought that it was it was better to manage lead people kind of from from the floor you know we're mm -hmm. all in this together and let's see if we can't come up with solutions together yeah and i also like the idea of communities because i think yes uh, a community gives that sense of belonging it's the, it's a concept i think i've heard you know in that tribal leadership where mm. we we are a tribe, we work together. We you know we belong to each other. I think right. um, there's an a Bantu idea called uh, Ubuntu, um, mm. which is very popular, I think, uh, in the world. But uh, it's uh, very prevalent here in Africa, which says essentially, "I am because we we are because I am, or I am because we are." So mm -hmm. it's my being, my success is connected to you, and vice versa. So we are right. a community. Right. Uh, so, and something else that you've mentioned there, you know, uh, this, which is, uh, I saw it in your book as well. You've talked about it. The idea that if your superior essentially uses your idea, that's a win for you. Um, right. that's a good thing right. for you. And so, which essentially that tells me is that, you know, if you are to successfully be a rebel at work, you need to have a certain level of humility, either that way, you know, you, your ego is not too big to a point where you withhold ideas because you're not too sure if you're going to get credit for those ideas. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. But, you know, that's another reason why too much ego is a problem because you may not speak up unless you're sure you're going to benefit from it, right? Yeah. And I think we see that a lot, especially, you know, in some organizations are not as innovative because of that. People, yes. you know, think, okay, you know, the 
CEO is going to get all the glory here. Um, they're the ones right. who are going to be incentivized. So why, why try? Right. And, you know, the CEO has made a mistake, has, has helped create a culture that, that's problematic. Yeah. And so going back to this idea now of um, building, moving away, I guess, from alliance mm-hmm. to community, um, I've also heard you talk about, you know, mental models and heuristics uh, as tools for clear thinking, so to speak, especially as an analyst, I'm assuming mm-hmm. they're very effective. Um, and one of the things that you warn you know, people to stay away from is this, the Athena complex, right? Uh, the complex, you know, the perfection or completeness, uh-huh. uh, especially when working with other people or trying to get other people to buy into what you were pushing right. for. Um, so how, how is avoiding that complex essentially good for building um, a community? Right. Well, I think that uh, if you want people to help you, you have to provide clear opportunities for them to help you. And often everybody in organizations, heretics, leaders, they all fall victim to the Athena complex, which the myth of Athena, Athena, the uh, ancient Greek goddess of wisdom, was that she was born, emerged, fully formed from the forehead of Zeus. She was in her battle armor, ready to go. And so oftentimes we think in organizations that our ideas have to be perfect before we can talk about them. You know, we don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want people to laugh at us or think we're a sloppy thinker. So we work really hard to present this, you know, bulletproof presentation deck that's just fantastic. If you're in the audience and you're hearing this, and you actually have a motivation to help, or this is an area of expertise and you know something that would be useful here, it's very difficult to figure out when you're going to present or make your point when that presentation looks so perfect. Mm. And I actually, there's actually research uh, that I've heard about that the, uh, when people who are running startups make their pitches to investors, the ones who have less perfect presentations, who admit, for example, things that they're still trying to figure out, get more investment dollars than the ones who are, you know, spotless, polished, perfect. And I think if you want people to help you, you have to provide them an opportunity to help. And that extends to lots of aspects. So for example, you don't talk so much during a meeting. You spend less time talking and you leave more time open for questions. You ask better questions of people that elicit their ideas. So instead of asking, do you have any comments? You actually go, what did I get wrong? Mm. Ask the room that, what did I get wrong? Or what did I miss? Or how would you do it differently? And I think that if you conduct yourself sort of in this open way where there are openings for people to come in and help you, you're going to get a lot more useful advice and you're going to have a much better idea. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that sense of openness, uh, which is an idea that I think we'll talk about as well. Uh, you know, this idea of honesty and openness and Candor. And there's a book mm-hmm. that I love uh, by Kim Scott called Radical Candor, where she essentially talks about 
how right. that culture is present in you know some of these large organizations like Google and Apple and whatnot. Uh, now, another strategy that you talk about uh, is this idea of always speak your truth, right? Um, which is an idea that's again it's been spoken about uh, by a number of thought leaders, and one of them is I think is covered in the book, uh, the fifteen commitments of conscious leadership. Mm. I think commitment number four, which is um, I commit to saying what is true for me. Um, mm. And so speaking of this idea of always speaking the truth, and I think the key word there being always, I think I've heard you a number of times use that word always, always, um, always speak the truth. You know, we're talking about facts, feelings, thoughts, opinions, judgments, convictions. Now this is tricky for most leaders because again, when you try to think politically, truth isn't always uh, your priority, right? Mm -hmm. Um, For Mm -hmm. most people who are political, highly political, you know, they, you say the right thing to get whatever result you want there. So it can be a bit manipulative. Um, But as a rebel at work, you have to always speak the truth. So, but many of us can't speak the truth because we are afraid. Uh, you know, a number of right. things you've just mentioned as well. You know, we're afraid of ridicule, looking like a fool, you know, losing favor with the higher ups. Uh, in the book, you talk about, you know, people are afraid of, you know, I might not be able to get promoted. Um, mm-hmm. uh, upsetting my boss, I think, you know, damaging my reputation, uh, alienating other people that you work with, a number of things. How, how do you overcome that fear as a leader? You know, how do you get to a point where you speak the truth even if your voice shakes? How do you get to that well, point? Well, I mean, you have to... There, one of the things I think a lot about uh, in this context is the difference between being kind and being nice. And uh, so being nice is that you don't say or do anything that might create a... Uh, uh, a moment of discomfort in the room. Being kind is, or a a moment of discomfort in the room or a moment of discomfort in you. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when you're being nice, you think it's about the other people in the room, but it's really about you, Mm -hmm. right? Being kind is when you realize, I need to say this to this person because it's going to help them, even though when I say it, they may, you know, for a moment or, or, or several moments, be a little miffed with me. But mm. it's really the kind thing to do. I, I tweeted the other day uh, something uh, where I said, there's nothing that is so painful is when someone criticizes you or points out a flaw that you're already painfully aware of, right? So, mm. you know, I know I procrastinate. I don't really need you to tell me that, right? Yeah, I don't but need anyway, the reminder, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so being kind is really about risking whatever that little pain is that might occur to you because, and you know, you need to be right because this is something well, it's good to be right. You're never going to be sure you're right, but it is just something that the other person needs to hear. And I think that that's a, um, an attitude that, you know, it's important, you know, on this radical candor thing, it's important for leaders to set the tone mm. because if they don't speak truth, 
then no, if they don't model that behavior, nobody else in the group is going to model that behavior. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they, it's important for them to encourage others to speak truth to me. That's why a question like, what did I get? What am I getting wrong? Is a, a really powerful question from, from a leader to a group of people. Um, you know, always speaking your truth. It's an idealistic statement, but it's one that I strongly believe in. And, and usually what I say is because you never know who's going to be listening. Mm. And as long as you speak it, you know, calmly and, you know, a very common thing, as long as you're not criticizing other people, but just talking about a process or uh, a situation, uh, you should be able to speak the truth as long as you sort of keep your lizard brain in control, right? And, mm. and uh, monitor your own emotions. Um, but I think, it, I, I just think there's so many issues involved in organizations that the kind of origin point is people not speaking truth to each other. One of the things I like to do, Ben, is uh, I like to watch these uh, documentaries about airplane disasters. Mm. There's there's a whole bunch of them, and I watch them because it's there's such interesting lessons on human dynamics. And at least half of the plane crashes are the result of a dysfunctional relationship between the people in the cockpit. <laughs> you know, mm. wow. where there's a, a hierarchical issue, and so the first officer realizes they're about to crash, but she won't say anything to the pilot because. The pilot's a cranky guy, you know, and they all die. And so for me, wow. it's that's that's a kind of a compelling thing that this emotion that we have, this concern that we have about not rocking the boat is so strong that we will risk death. Wow. To avoid doing so you, you it. you would see the iceberg and not say a thing. And not say a thing. Exactly. And so, um, and, and, and so the airline industry, you know, has spent a lot of time on this issue of cockpit management. Uh, and, you know, they instruct, you know, pilots to just say what they think is going on. Anyway, and, I'm getting a little, a little bit off course, but I, no, I just actually, think, I, I, I like the segue yeah. because... Um, you speak about this, you know, in, on the section where you talk about, you know, what rebels want from their leader. Oh, and yes. um, you speak about the idea of, you know, they need an environment. Yes. And there's this concept of psychological safety where space oh, people course. can comfortably yeah. share, you know, their opinions, yeah. their ideas, their thoughts, right. uh, which is, you know, if that environment doesn't exist, then people who aren't as confrontational will essentially be quiet. Right. So h- how do we build that space where people will see the iceberg and actually say something so we don't all right. die? Um, how, do we, how do we create that environment? You know, how do leaders begin to create that environment? Well, uh, I think, um, I, think you, I mean, I, I've said this again, but I think that you have to model the behavior. <clears throat> and you have, to be, you have to be the first one to subject yourself to radical candor. And uh, uh, I know a lot of people 
colleagues of mine who always believed that a leader could never admit that they were wrong and, you know, blah, blah. They had to be, you know, very strong. I think that's just, I, I think that's just flawed. And I think even organizations such as militaries that used to be uh, big proponents of that leadership style are moving away from it. Mm. So, I, you know, there is no easy answer, I, I think, other than that you have to model that behavior yourself. And, you know, uh, uh, one thing I will say in terms of creating that environment is a lot of teams, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, we want to run the group by consensus. Mm. That's, that's a mistake. When you say I'm going to run the group by consensus, what you're probably saying is we're all going to end up doing what I think is best first. But even if that's not what you mean, what, what, you are telling people is that we want to avoid disagreement. Mm. And I think the conversation that a, a leader should have with his followers, with the team, is say, okay, we're not always going to agree on everything. Everything is not going to be clear, and there may be options for how to deal with things. So the first thing we have to figure out, and the only thing we have to agree on, is how do we manage disagreement? That's the first thing I want to talk about in terms of how this team is going to work. How do we manage disagreement? Now, that's an interesting concept when you say mm. that's the first thing you're going to talk about. Because I don't think there's a lot of people who do it that way. No. And, and as soon as you do that, you kind of have made clear that you expect there to be disagreement. And, that and there's a way have, to handle it. And there's, and there's a productive way to handle it. And I think that that is a, a, a specific thing you can do to set the tone. Yeah, I think that's a splendid idea because um, sometimes if um, agreement is the expectation that uh, the leader has for the team, those who disagree will sort of feel compelled to agree for the sake of, yes, you know, so that right. we achieve this thing, so that the meeting can end, so that we can all right. go home. Yeah, um, right. And if you have your own reservations, now you can't bring them up because you've already agreed. So why are you saying this after yeah. the fact? Right. Uh, and which means now we're no longer operating with candor or honesty. We, you know, so it's this vicious cycle mm -hmm. that can keep mm -hmm. going on and on. Yeah. But I think also for some leaders, that's, I think it's a risky idea. Uh, the idea of saying, you know, I'm open to disagreement or we will disagree. That's uh, inevitable mm -hmm. in a sense. Uh, for some leaders view that as a risky idea because we, we like the idea of unity. We don't like, that's why mm. people silence people. That's why right. uh, they can create an environment where, you know, there are consequences if you go against. Um, and where do you think that fear comes from? This Certain leaders have this fear of just, they don't want disagreement. They want agreement. They want everybody to be on the uh, I same think, page. Well, it's two image, things. Yeah. It's their ego, right? Yeah. And uh, second, it's this, it gets back to what organizations want mm. and kind of a common theology of all organizations is they want things to run smoothly. They want consistency so they can value, uh, so they can deliver value at scale. And what I tell organizational leaders is you need to stop 
or, or place less value on consistency. Because, for example, everybody's into diversity and hiring diverse workforces, but a diverse workforce will be less smooth. There mm. will be more disagreement. It will be crunchier. So organizations have to rethink this, how much value they place on smoothness. Because I know when I was at CIA, we all loved and rewarded managers who ran well-running teams, smooth teams. Mm. And that value runs counter to a lot of other things that you need for innovation, for example. Reason mm -hmm. why innovation is disliked is because it's messy. It breaks the smoothness. You'll rock the boat. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, something else that uh, I've heard you say, I think it's that I find very interesting, is when you were talking about your time in South Africa in the 80s. Um, and there's a statement that you said, which I think, you know, really stood out to me. Um, Essentially, why is a group of people so divided when the externalities mm. are the same? You're mm -hmm. talking about your, the team that you were leading and, you know, in trying to do oh, an analysis yeah. of yeah. Uh, the future of essentially South Africa post-independence, uh, potentially at that time, of course. Um, in asking this question, what, 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 what did you realize? What did you, you know, what was the well, profound one revelation? Of the, one of the things I realized is that uh, the fundamental... Uh, divide among people or dis or differentiation among people is whether they're optimists or pessimists. Mm. You know, there's this thing, uh, the big five emotional uh, qualities in people, extroversion or introversion. Uh, I think optimism, pessimism is one of them. Uh, and I found that people that were optimists about everything else tended to be optimistic about South Africa. And people mm -hmm. that were pessimists about just their general, just their general outlook in life was pessimistic, tended to be pessimists about, you know, whether South Africa would ever discard apartheid. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a lesson I learned about analysis because we have this ideal of the purely objective analyst and this individual doesn't exist. Mm. Uh, even artificial intelligence will be biased because it'll be biased by how it was trained and the algorithm that runs it. Everything mm. has a bias. And we should stop pretending that we don't have biases and instead recognize them and, you know, use them effectively. Mm. Um, and to this idea of bias, because I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's something that... Uh, you've spoken about, especially in your talk, when you're talking about heuristics and, uh, and mental models and whatnot. And there's an idea where you say, you know, now in, I guess recognizing your biases and either making them work for you or going, you know, beyond uh, your biases. Um, there's a statement that you've said, you know, our ability to know anything is a function of our tools and methods for, for knowing, knowing right? right? So how can we expand essentially the toolkit and, uh, and, and these methods so that we're positioned to clearly and yeah, accurately... Well, yeah, no. so this, this gets to this point again of why organizations actually sell themselves short by valuing smoothness, right? So mm -hmm. we have all these great tools for knowing. We have uh, computers now, uh, you know, many of the great advances in science were really based on the development of a new tool, like the mm -hmm. telescope, for example. Uh, but 
ultimately, the greatest human tool is, or the greatest tool is the human brain. We mm. have yet, we're still trying to figure out how to develop a software that is as intelligent, is as good at uh, pattern detection, is as nuanced uh, as the human brain is. So the best, I think, this is the ultimate argument for diversity of thought. The best way to increase your toolkit is to hire a diverse group of thinkers because they are going to expand the knowledge that your team has and think differently about all your opportunities and problems. So human ingenuity, human cognition is the, still the ultimate tool and limiting yourself to people that think just like me is really problematic. The ultimate tool for knowing is still the human brain. We're trying to replicate it with our artificial intelligence, but we have yet to figure out how to create software that is as nuanced, is as good at pattern detection, et cetera, et cetera, as the human brain. So if you want to increase the knowledge bandwidth of your team, I think the best way to do it is to hire for diversity of thought and and different thinking styles. And wh why that's tricky for organizations is that when you have different types of thinkers, you're going to have more disagreement. But the disagreements are really healthy for the organization. Mm. There is an idea that um, Adam Grant has spoken about, um, which is essentially an idea that is contrary to what is popularized right now. Because right now, the I've heard this from many thought leaders and uh, people who work in recruitment, the idea of hiring for culture. You know, you want to mm. hire people who fit a particular culture. And Adam Grant says, essentially, taking that approach is not good because you are getting people who essentially think and operate the same way. So, right. And what you're losing along the way is while you're getting people who can harmoniously exist together, you are losing out on diversity of thought, which right. is a key component in trying to, you know, innovate and build innovative uh, organizations. So right. what are your thoughts? And I know I think in one of your talks, you've mentioned that you did some recruitment uh, work uh, uh, when you were working for CIA. So how did you, what was your approach essentially? Do you think this approach of hiring for culture is the right approach? Right. Well, or, I think, you know, by the way, hiring for culture is just another way of saying hiring for smoothness. You're, try you're hiring for smooth operations. So you're hiring someone that fits in. Mm. And in a world that is changing really rapidly in ways that we cannot anticipate, smoothness really should not be your uh, uh, uppermost yeah. uh, organizational value goal in an organization. So I, you know, I like to ask open-ended questions of people that were seemed innocuous, but really meant a lot to me. So mm. I would ask uh, applicants, like, tell me, tell me what was the latest book you read? Mm. Totally innocuous question, but you can learn a lot about a group of applicants when they tell you what's the latest book they read or, or what's the most recent film they saw that made them think about something. Mm. So uh, oftentimes we ask 
questions of applicants where, you know, we tell them to talk about a problem that they solved or whatever, and, you know, very specific work-related questions. And I think it's a good idea to ask them questions about, you know, just how they live in general, to get a sense of, you know, how different are they from my my culture? And, and mm. the goal being to bring in people that are different than your culture. That's mm. That should be your goal. And, and it can, ex- I know one thing that uh, we used to talk a lot about is we like to hire at CIA people with high academic credentials. Well, too many people with high academic credentials is, is a mistake. You know, mm. you need to hire people that are, uh, uh, you know, uh, may not have excelled academically, but have a lot of grit and resilience and uh, other attributes that you really want on your team. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and not to mention that when you hire for, for just academic credentials, you leave out, out a lot of people who, you know, had to work through school or, you know, had family issues when they were going to school and couldn't devote the same amount of time. Mm. So there's a lot of reasons why you need to think about how you hire and your hiring practices and make sure that you are not hiring to a cookie cutter uh, model of, of the perfect employee. Mm. Uh, something else that you've mentioned is, you know, the innovation is a combining of diverse ideas into a synthesis. Right, um, right. Essentially, you know, diversity of thought leads to better outcomes. Right. Um, but you also uh, admit that it can lead to horrible outcomes. Right. Um, so how can we sift through the diverse input, right? Um, yes. So that we can separate quality thoughts or quality ideas from the ones that are, don't have, you know, quality and that wouldn't lead to the outcome we desire. Um, well, I th- oh. yeah, I think part of what you need to do is you, you, you should... It, shouldn't go all in on an idea, mm. uh, you know, and uh, particularly a new idea. And so finding small digestible pieces of a new idea to uh, iterate with is a, a good way to prote- protect yourself from catastrophic failure. Mm. And so I think that you always have to be, I I once made a talk, I think it was in California, and this woman came up to me and she said, I have two words for you, tiny Mm. pivots. And that Mm. was her whole approach to change, never making a big old dramatic banners flying change, but rather uh, talking about what are the small little adjustments I can make on a continuous basis that in five years get me somewhere else. Mm. So I think that... uh, and then the, I think the other thing that you that you need to set up, you know, when, when I was talking about how you have to have ground rules for disagreement. You need to come up with sort of what's your approach for evaluating different options. That's basically mm. another way of saying you have to have a ground rule for disagreements. Mm. And I, and if I were a leader, I would say one of my ground rules for uh, managing disagreement is that it's not a zero sum game. You know, mm. there's not one winner and four losers, right? We are always going to look for a way to uh, have a more dynamic approach to how we implement ideas. Mm. Um, um, that, that's, that's good. Now, something else, and this is something that I'm very passionate about, the idea of failure. I think I'm obsessed mm. with uh, studying failure and 
essentially asking myself, what relationship should we essentially as leaders have with failure? Because it seems to be a very crucial and important uh, uh, component to any kind of success. Right. Yeah. And then there's something that you uh, mentioned as well is that, you know, it's like essentially recognizing success is good, but the better approach is to demand failure. Right. And, and that's a very bold statement to make to not just to, you know, essentially encourage, but to demand failure right. as a way to uh, cultivate, I guess, diversity of thought and increase the chances mm -hmm. of innovating. So can you speak on this a bit, this idea of demanding failure and why it's important? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I chose those words in part because I wanted to make a dramatic statement, you know, that yeah. a lot of what we say about failure being good is pablum. You know, we're just saying these things, but we don't really mean them. Mm. And the people who work for you are very good at identifying when you're just blowing smoke, when you're just saying things, nice things, because they sound good. Mm. So if you demand failure, you, can't, you could, for example, every year with your reports say, at the end of year assessment, I want you to discuss a failure that you were proud of, that the, fa the failure that you were most proud of in the last year. Mm. That's going to that's going to that's going to make people crazy in your organization. You said something that is totally uh divergent from the culture of like success. But be serious about it. Go tell me about a failure, the you know, something that didn't go well that you're proud of. And I think using that language proud of is important. Cuz mm. everybody can kind of fake I learned something from a failure, but it's harder to fake this idea that I'm Proud of this failure because, right? Mm. Uh, a similar thing that I think all managers should have as a goal every year is to work with one of their employees to develop and advance a new idea. Now, this is mm. something I've gotten kind of something that entered my mind most recently. And I go, you know, every manager should have as one of their goals for the year to work with a report to advance one of their ideas. That mm. would be so different, uh, set such a different tone in an organization. Everyone would know that they're supposed to present ideas and the manager would know that he's partly responsible for making sure that that idea, if it's a good idea, moves forward. So I think that those are two ways that you can uh, uh, yeah, you know, help help people advance new and different ideas. Yeah, and and I think it's something that I've read. Uh, I don't remember and, her. And think think more seriously about failure, right? In a more yeah. coherent way. Yeah, I think it's a it's a what you've just said now. You know, it's a there's I forgot her name, but I think she's been on like Shark Tank or something like that. Uh -huh. uh, she's this famous real estate mogul uh, in New York. I think she's based in New York, and she was saying that you know, her managers in her company, every year they're given a, a budget for failure, you know, so you, this, oh. is an amount, this is an amount of money you can, you know, explore, yeah. invest in ideas. Right. If they don't work, it's fine. If they work out, it's, yeah. um, right. but you know, just know that if they don't work out, you know, you don't have to report here and do anything. It's just, yeah, I mean, let's my, try my, out different things. Yeah. You know, when I was a manager, I would tell the analysts who work for me, I would say, look, I'm not judging you on whether or not you produce a perfect report the first time. I'm judging you or evaluating your progress based on, 
you know, compared to the previous report, how have you improved? Mm. And I think, you know, another uh, element to making people accept failure is uh, to, there should be no shame in asking for help in, mm. in an organization. You know, I would say, if you need help on a particular issue, ask me. Because I, you know, rather than you work five days to try to solve it, and I probably, with my experience, can do it in half a day, ask me. Really, what I want to see is, is, is progression so that the kind of help you need changes over time, right? So that you don't need help on this kind of issue anymore because you've got it. Now you're moving on to the next set of issues that you need help on. But I think it's important when, if you want to really have a culture that demands failure, that people feel completely comfortable in asking for help. Mm. I guess the back to that whole idea of psychological safety where people yes, can, right. can just come to you. Uh, now, as we're drawing to a close, there's a question uh, that I'm trying to make, uh, you know, repetitive habit uh, to ask guests, which is the one, 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 uh, essentially... Mm. Uh, one book uh, you wish you read earlier in your career, uh, one habit you wish you had developed sooner, and one value you won't compromise no matter the cost. So I, I don't think I could have read the book earlier because it wasn't written, but <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was had been familiar with the ideas in, it's a book by Meg Wheatley, Leadership and the New Science. Leadership and the New Science. Yeah, it came out... Oh, probably close to 40 years ago. But wow. basically, she was talking about what we're learning about science and how that applies to how we should lead. Mm. And a lot of it had to do with complexity theory and emergence and all these things that should lead us to question kind of a linear approach to management. You know, I, mm. I pull this lever, X happens. That's not mm. the way the world works. So that's the book. Uh a habit that I should have started earlier. Is that right? Something yes. I, I did that I, I wish I had done earlier. Um, I wish I had been more um, decisive earlier in my career. I don't mean controlling. I just mean that when there, when there was something that it was my job to make a decision on, to make that decision a little faster and not anguish about it. Because what I learned in my career is I got to higher and higher positions that I have a good team around me and uh, I'm part of a good team. So if I make a decision that's not optimum, the team yes. will correct it for me. Mm. But if I make no decision at all and create the roadblock in the process, they can't compensate for that. So mm. you have a good team around you uh, don't spend a lot of time agonizing over the perfect decision. Make a good decision and the team will improve it for you. So that's, that's yeah. something I wish I had learned earlier. Mm -hmm. And a, uh, a value that I will compromise, I won't compromise no matter what, um, I mean, there, I have several to choose from. I have more than one value, but I'm I'm going to say. Uh, let's see if, how to phrase it. Um, 
having, expecting the best from everyone all Mm. the time. I'm not saying that I'm demanding the best. I'm saying that I'm expecting the best because I believe my experience has been that people rise to the expectations you have for them. Mm. And so this was often important for me when dealing with problem employees or a new employee. And I would always set, expect that they're going to do great. And Mm. 90% plus of the time they did great. So that's something I will not compromise. Even if you come across, um, because I think there's this idea in leadership, right? It's uh, if you set out to be liked, you will not necessarily be successful as a leader because yeah. sometimes, you know, having these expectations is going to put pressure on some people and some people right. don't necessarily want to take that too well at the beginning, of course, once they right. start to see the right. fruit of uh, yeah. those expectations, then they start to appreciate the fact that you had those expectations to begin with. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's not like I have a uh, uh, talk with them and say, these are my expectations. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think actions reveal intentions. So... When in, in, in my line of work, you know, uh, having, uh, having to brief a high-level policymaker was a big deal. And so the typical approach was to reserve that only for the most experienced analysts. Mm. And my approach was, you know, I, I want all my analysts to be able to do this. And so I would assign the high-level briefing to a more junior analyst. Now, the senior analysts were furious at me mm. for denying them that opportunity, but it was just my view that that's the only way we all got better is if the newest members of our team got better too, right? Yeah. So. Oh, interesting. Uh, thank you so much for everything. I mean, you've shared a lot here, uh, and I'm sure our listeners, we you know, will have at this point, if they've listened up to, up to this point, have learned so much. Uh, and of course, if anyone wants to know more, learn more, you can just go and, and Google uh, Carmen Medina. And I think so many links are going to pop up. Uh, YouTube videos, TED Talks, um, her website, Amazon. You can go to Amazon if you want to get the book. Uh, so many resources out there uh, to learn from. Uh, do you have any last words to say before we end the conversation? Um, other No, other than to... Uh uh, urge you to keep doing what you're doing because, you know, we can all be leaders. We can all be smarter leaders and, it, you know, prosperity is, is available to us all really. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Carmen Medina. And uh, you have a wonderful time. And to our listener, thank you for listening. This has been the Why Lead Others podcast and I am your host, Ben Odin. This has been the Wildlead Others podcast brought to you by Wildlead Consultancy. Wildlead Consultancy is a capacity building firm that exists to build highly productive and innovative leaders. To reach us, go to www.wildleadothers.com.